Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. What exactly is Red Bull Music Academy? I have a chat with Torsten Schmidt and Manny Ameri, RBMA co-founders, and you'll realize it's getting harder to summarize by the minute. It began as a way for an energy drink company that was ubiquitous in nightclubs to forge a lasting connection with the scene, a bit of well-intentioned branding, if you will. That's still the simplest way of explaining it, but with RBMA co-signing festival stages, organizing music workshops across the globe, building a pop-up radio station in Berlin, and plenty else, it's clear one sentence won't do. The Academy itself, though, an invite-only lecture, workshop, and studio series with events spilling out into the host city, is still at the heart of what they do. So when I sat down with Torsten and Manny on the occasion of RBMA's 15th anniversary, its collaborations, participants, and occasionally contentious lectures were the conversation's focus. it might be a nice way to start just to ask you guys kind of what you do at the academy a lot of accounting and um, travel expenses at least that's what we're doing at night um, no, um, I guess we founded the whole thing and um, so we still are in a lucky position to kind of build that playground that we have been populating over the past 15 years yeah so if you if, if the question was also like how we would like how each one of us would actually what we would be doing um, yeah so I guess janitor is a good description <laughs> for what I do exactly um, pretty much um, I don't know people usually see these workshops and <clears throat> that there's two people sitting on a couch I sort of work with people locally to create the place where that couch stands and where the studios will be where the sessions happen and um, work a lot about uh, on on the legacy of what the academy can can leave in a city um, afterwards, both physically in a building and also in the programs that happen around it. So, a lot of the organizational part, and also when it comes to the event side of things, um, that's uh, mainly where where you'll find me. Um, Manny, you mentioned legacy, and uh, the reason we're here today speaking is sort of about fifteen years. Of the Red Bull Music Academy, um, you guys started in was it 1998? Yes, one of first. And it was right here in Berlin. How did this whole thing come about? Um, it sort of seems on the surface like Red Bull is an energy drink. It's maybe slightly removed from this sort of music academy that's sprung up now. I mean, how did this whole thing get started? Well, weirdly enough, even when you open the can, it's still an energy drink. <laughs> and um, somewhere down the line, it kind of stays there. But, um, well, they kind of realized that they were very prominent and um, 
ubiquitous in a way. They were like everywhere, literally. Like, um, I guess it was only a few years earlier than that when we were putting on our own parties. And um, if someone went to a snowboarding thing in the Alps, I was like, oh yeah, bring back a tray of that stuff. And um, there was definitely a, some sort of a natural connection of people using um, in both the sports sense and in a nightlife sense and uh, in studios, in um, writing and, you know, where people do editorial stuff and basically everywhere where you just stay up for quite a long time. And um, Red Bull figured at the time that as far as sports goes, they kind of know what to do. You just find five people that do something that no one else does in the world and you make a world championship out of it and make sure it's filmed really well. And um, they wondered, like, how on earth are we going to do that with music? Because um, culture doesn't work in that competitive way. So it was a little bit more difficult to tackle. Yeah, and and basically we, we were approached back then in 1997, so... Um, to prepare this and 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 the point was pretty much yeah they they had really understood what they were doing in a sports environment and they wanted to do something in music and it was clear that the commitment was a long-term commitment and that they really really wanted to do something that would be substantial and help grow the scenes that they had been involved in and um, they wanted people to help them to do that so um I wanted people to help us to do that, and Torsten was one of them. Uh, basically, we uh, got a whole group of different music journalists together and uh, went to a little village in Italy and sat down for a few days and tried to come up with a concept for a project that would deal with a lot of different music scenes and that would be there forever and that would have uh, quality at its heart and would not make any compromises when it comes to content. And... Uh, and the concept that came out of that was this Red Bull Music Academy. Do you remember what some of the other prototypes for getting involved with music were? It sounds like there was maybe some brainstorming involved in this. Well, it wasn't necessarily on our brains. It was like the, whoever has been part of the scene in, in the mid and or throughout the 90s actually had, had seen a lot of brands coming into the culture and pretty much throwing money at it and staying in there for a year or two, and then sort of moving on to another music scene or another topic or whatever. And while that was somewhat amusing when you were on the other side, it was also, uh, it brought out a lot of the cynicism that actually also united all sorts of subcultures around the globe and still keeps them fueled. And I think why this somehow was different was because all this the idea was to get the most cynical minds together to come up with something that would be strong enough to withhold that uh, cynicism and um and and it was clear that uh, red bull did not want to become a sponsor in something and they weren't really looking for uh you know ways of doing crazy stuff on love parade yeah this was the time when this was still going on here in uh, berlin in a big way and um including all the lovely atrocities like um <laughs> anything that you can possibly think of any sort of product inflated to at least 2.5 times the size of a grown man um <laughs> free tampons in any sort of size um as giveaway in backpacks um uh, you know, inflatable phones inflatable dog food, inflatable, whatever you could find to have people run behind a float was basically the way to get presence in the scene. This wasn't a branding exercise necessarily. This was 
okay, we're not just going to give people products that have our name on it. We're going to find a way to actually give something back to the to the scene. I think that was the point of getting like cynical people involved, because、um, I mean, if you want to give away products, you find someone that's really handsome and pass that out. So I mean, the job's done right there. But、um, you could definitely tell. I mean, I remember at the time working at Groove that we got. I don't know, fifteen to twenty proposals a day with some brand wanting to get involved into our scene in this or that way, and a lot of those things were just so horrendous that you would not even touch the paper to put it in the bin. The thing was that、um, even then, we probably even more so, we felt like、uh, you know the whole twenty-seven, twenty-nine, live fast, die young kind of things. Like why put energy and lifetime into something that's not. Um, sustainable, meaningful, and all these other also fashionable terms now. But it's really like, hey, in the end, it is your life that you're spending with this kind of thing, and you rather want to motivate other people to、um, probably do a similar thing and invest their time into something meaningful and creative. And、um, so, therefore, yes, it is a branding exercise. There is a name of a brand attached to it. But、um, you don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to find out that that brand funds it. In the end, it's really obvious, I mean, that, and that gives you a lot of freedom. That was also part of the ambition. I mean,、uh, while Torsten was looking at this from the editor's chair,、uh, I was sort of looking at this from somebody who's worked in an agency and who had the marketing background, if you want, and who was sort of bored with、um, the idea of. Even if you try to marry、uh, arts and 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 commerce and find a way how they would have lovely children and protect that relationship, you could see that there was a certain、um, system or, that had been developed that was just pulled out of、uh, agency drawers all over the place to、uh, replicate and make money for agencies. And where I was sort of sitting, I was sort of. Really thinking if there was no way how to do something that wasn't just for a few years and、uh, that that really took this idea of taking responsibility really seriously, and so、um, the opportunity was always also there to to say by by not hiding、uh, the brand behind some type of a fantasy name that would be the flavor of the the season. Uh, but calling it、uh, very factually the Red Bull Music Academy in our case,、uh, it would also oblige us、um, to do something that has the quality that would,、uh, at some stage,、um, you know, withstand all the cynicism. And there is also an idea of transparency in that, where people can look at something and say, "I'm just, I don't want any brand to step into my life, and I don't want to get involved." And there were a few people that actually looked at it this way, but、um, our whole approach was、uh, to try and create、uh, quality content、uh, and really、um, invest our energy in stuff that we think is worthwhile for scenes to grow. And、uh, and ultimately, we thought that that would prevail. Yeah, artists, especially、um, kind of at the earliest stages of their career when they're underground, do tend to be. Pretty prickly about this kind of thing, about、um, having a brand attached to them, about doing something that is branding. in In the early stages of the Music Academy,、um, despite、um, you know really wanting to do something very different, did you still?、Uh, I mean, how did you pitch it to artists? Was was it still sort of a difficult sell because there's still a brand name involved in it? 
the one thing that we kind of neglected so far that's probably the biggest driver in this thing is curiosity in the end and if you are an artist and you do something meaningful there's a good chance that you harbor a lot of that curiosity within yourself and um you can remember what it was like to be a fan of something and wanting to know more about that. And yes, there was a time when the internet was almost non-existent. You had to use Mosaic or Netscape um, if you just graduated from uh, the fax machine that is. And you needed to have two really bulky friends to carry your mobile computer around if you had such a thing. Or you ended up with three herniated discs like myself. And... Um, the thing was, there was just not that much information available. And a lot of the reason why a lot of folks around me went into journalism is they just wanted to know more about certain types of music. They wanted to know what it was, how it was made, what was the motivation behind it, um, what cultural context the people were from. And in the normal interview format that you can do in a magazine, especially around then, there was just not the time for it. And so we figured, hey, Here's a great opportunity where you as the artist can also step out of the general promo cycle, which was pretty much like single, single album tour, single, single album tour, maybe another single. And then maybe you get a movie licensing in between if you're really lucky and that's that. And you would always do like more or less the same um, rice cooker show around those same kind of topics. And then it's like, look, Here's a room full of people that are essentially like you. They will be like you in a few years and you will talk on an eye level. That's why we took people down from the pedestal, not like in a university or on a TV show where you have someone up on the stage, but literally leveled the playing field, um, made it as cozy as possible, made sure it's um, as intimate as possible, yet at the same time, as many people as possible can um, partake. And... Then you start talking about all the questions that hopefully touch on why you are actually an artist, a creative person or a musician, however you want to call that in the end. And that um, was something that a lot of artists actually um, cherished in a way and um, reminded them in a lot of ways of like, oh yeah, it's not all the boring boring co-course that I won't ever touch um, anyway. It's more about like, hey, I want to put this piece of music out. I want to make sure this video is happening in the end and all these sort of things. And oh, by the way, I'm a fan of music and that's the kind of stuff I loved. And that's why I do this now. And um, that kind of seemed to work pretty well and from the get-go and um, we had the um, advantage that a lot of the people that we had in the team were journalists and so have had that experience with someone else beforehand and you were like okay artist xyz might be the biggest name at the moment but he's very very uncomfortable talking in front of a crowd or this lady, um, yeah, she will only talk about her product, but not about all these other things. And it will, won't be that motivational and so on. And so we handpicked a few of them and then we gradually build it on top of that. And the good thing is that um, our client was actually um, very, very um, calm and um, had the confidence in us and gave us the room and the time to grow. And so a lot of the things that actually we told them would happen like back in 97 98 99 
somewhere down the line actually started to happen and um, these days probably even happened a little bit too much sometimes so that you wonder <laughs> like oh maybe we um, um, scratch that association off the list here <laughs> no, but um, it, it's it's good it's it's become a pretty healthy way of growing yeah and I, because you were you you weren't necessarily looking to get in and very quickly get out this wasn't a short-term right. branding exercise there was actually kind of built into the format the time to to grow and to kind of see organically where this Red Bull Music Academy thing would go I think I think you know it's always hard when you when you see something that um, seems to be quite a complex uh, entity nowadays uh, and then it, imagine how it was when we started uh, everything we've done was very very pragmatic so to I don't know whether it's the workshops or the radio, whatever you see nowadays, there's always a story that somehow led to us trying it. So at the time, just to explain that pragmatism as well, it was important to us to that we would invite the right people to come and sit on the couch and speak. And it was also important that we we would explain to them what it was we wanted from them because it was so different from what they were used to it. Now you look at uh, South by Southwest or every self-respecting uh, music festival has some type of a conference going on and a talk or whatever. These kind of things weren't happening on, on that level. So it was important that we would get the chance to speak to people. So the very core of the Academy team in 1998 uh, were the people that reached out to the artists. They were having the conversations and explained what, what, what it was we wanted from them what we were hoping to achieve from this experiment, and it was nothing but an experiment at, at the time, and that our intentions were good. And then I think everything that happened afterwards was um, magic. <laughs> like, I mean, in a way, you were we were witnessing something that was just happening um, at the Academy, and we went with that flow. We really didn't know whether uh, the idea of having uh, 30 participants representing all sorts of music styles uh, united in one room um, would work out and what they would have to talk about. And and we also did not know a lot about like the things that have now become very formulaic in the way that we built the academy and do things, whether those things uh, worked or not were things that were just, we've tried that and that went with the things that worked for us. What worked, what didn't work? <clears throat> well, um, interestingly enough, because... We had this conversation the other day how it's crazy what you remember and what sort of images you keep from the academy. And um, <clears throat> we were actually pretty lucky because that very first talk worked really well. It was Jeff Mills, and, um, who is eloquent as he can be. Um, um, very conceptual, so that really helped. But at that time, he was all also very idolized as well and so the whole notion of here's this superstar dj and um he's got very earthly things to deal with every night on a different continent um that definitely opened a lot of eyes i guess and um so to see that there's a yeah a 
360 degree sort of um, image of that person. So you don't not only get to hear it's like, oh, what's the story with the rings of Saturn and uh, what the mojo was like and um, what radio was like and how do you sync up a drum machine to a reel-to-reel tape and how you keep changing vinyl every three seconds and while staying on beat and all those things. But it's also about like, how do you deal with your underwear? How do you pack when you're touring this much? And what does it with you emotionally and so on? And that really set the tone pretty nicely. Yeah, for, from the get-go, it wasn't just speaking about, this is how I make music. It was speaking about, this is how I am a working musician. Yeah. These are the things I have to worry about. And those are were the things that we wanted to get across because um, at that time I tried to study at the, um, the Frankfurt Institute of Sociology. Academia at the time was pure horror. That, that was academia was purgatory and at on the other hand you had like all these engineering schools or some sort of things that came out of the rock world that didn't really do our culture any justice either and um, even though a lot of the thing uh, the people that were cherished um, like I think in Frankfurt for example Move D and um, Jörn Elling Wutke from Alter Ego were in the same SAE class but in the end the mere fact that they met each other there in the same way as people would meet in a record store would be more important than what they actually learned there. And um, so there, <laughs> there's this model, then there's that model. And um, at the same time, we felt like, hey, it's not doing the whole thing any justice at all. And we want to know about the history and all of that kind of stuff. And we want to hear about that firsthand. And, um, and then again, pragmatism um, ruled first and so we started to gradually build on it and at first we called it studios but in the end it was two turntables and a monitor system and a mixer because a lot of people just couldn't afford turntables and so the mere fact that you could practice for like five six hours a day and practice with other people and you know see what they do because there's not youtube where you can just learn any sort of scratch within three minutes if you're somehow capable but you really had to find that one person in your country that would know how to do a flash scratch or whatever and if you then at the same time had like i don't know some world-class renowned turntablist tell you then that would be priceless um then i think in the second year we got really ambitious and we had an mpc and a 909 <laughs> in and um, there was this whole aspect of like oh can i touch it and then for a lot of people there was this whole thing of like uh, hang on, uh, Derek, Richie, is that all you did? Like, push start on this thing? Like, really? So um, demystifying technology was soon a very big topic. And then obviously software got a little cheaper and things became more available. And um, that kind of reflected also in the music that we got in the applications. Because in the first couple of years, you were totally happy if there was at least one decent sound that somehow matched what you wanted to hear in, in the end result. Whereas now everyone's got those sounds at their fingertips, but you're really looking for an idea and um, an understanding of how to construct a track, a song or whatever you want to do. And so over the years, different topics got introduced. Like all of a sudden it did make sense to talk to arrangers and people that did great stuff with Motown or whatever, and then see, oh, how does that apply to the track I want to hear at Burkheim tonight. Yeah, in terms of participants, because I think that's 
sort of something that you're hinting at here. It sounds like, you know, in the beginning, um, you were maybe uh, not getting sort of the same le- like skill level, like you weren't getting um, really advanced producers or anything applying for it was this a thing. Different, it was a different world. Yeah. I mean, really, um, this, Torsten mentioned turntablists, I mean, to start with. Um, that was a huge deal of like having your invisible scratch pickles and executioners and whatever. Yeah, I noticed they were one of the first guests. Music and whatever with the turntable, that whole discussion about what is real music and is not and what have you and what you could read and what you can learn from scratching or just blending two tracks for eight minutes, uh, you know, was a huge deal between them. <laughs> and, 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 and still having those those physical places where people would meet and actually buy records in shops and stuff like that. Um, if if your city was lucky enough to have a few of those, um, it it was a different world. So I think it's it's not necessarily that the level of people has changed. It's just that, um, and yes, like I would say, uh, now when you're looking at our participants, we're very happy with the kind of people that apply for the academy, and we're we're happy with all the participants we have. But it's also the that the presence out there has changed. Like when often we have these discussions about how uh, how how somebody was picked as a participant who's already a superstar or something like that. The difference is that that whole blogosphere that made them the uh, super, and I need to show these inverted uh, commas here now, <laughs> uh, star, uh, were, was just not existent at the time. So... It was the talent of those people that we invited in 98 and 99 so much different uh, than some other talents? Um, the discipline was different, the audience was different, and the access was also very different. But at the same time, there's like a lot of now renowned producers in that first year as well. Like, yeah. like, I mean, if I just think of it, was mostly, mostly Germans and mostly Berliners, and um, people like would come straight to mind is like Robert Koch was one of the ones in the first years and the Beethovens who do did like a majority of the German mainstream hip hop that's based in Berlin uh, were a part of that um, who else was in the first hype yeah, uh, there, there was a bunch of people but at the same time um, that curve of um, being known was very very different and I mean now you have the feeling and Money was hinting at this and um, when people are applying that you don't want to discourage them but um, especially now when we had to postpone academies for like six months twice because of the odd natural disaster or so on um, it's really bizarre how those careers actually propel within such a short amount of time but at the same time you're talking about people who still only have eight tracks out like I mean, when we when we saw even Christ's application, we knew of one or two tracks that he's done, and we heard others on his demo that were really good. With the academy being postponed last year, in the meantime, he got signed. Um, a lot of those tracks got picked up by a lot of really big names and so on. And so everyone thinks he's a superstar, but in essence, he's still the same nice guy from somewhere in the north. Uh, west of England and um, like a proper geezer who's really <laughs> happy to learn about, about a lot of other things because in I mean yes the world has changed in a way that you meet 
like there's these uh, there's German participants that are in a band or one German participant that's in a band. He would tell you that um, he's so depressed of like how late he's discovered Arthur Russell when he was 18. And it's like, hang on, like a lot of people that I know have never heard about Arthur Russell before they can... 28 30 or whatever because it's it's just so that okay someone gives you a hint and you can just find out about what is behind that hint and all the worlds behind it so quickly that um it's probably even more important to have these kind of aggregators and have some sort of a um trusted force in the middle that points you to the right directions and probably helps you um wasting time because yeah the disciplines are very different now. Yeah, well, I think what you guys, or what it seems like you guys are both kind of hinting at is something that's probably the the biggest change that's occurred over the 15 years that you guys have been doing this, and that's the ubiquity of the internet and the effect that that has on on music careers, and just on on music in general. I, I mean, does that does that make sense to you guys? I mean, is that something that you've seen really changing the game? With, I mean, with young I th- producers, I think what you what you can tell is that it's also gone through so many different phases and and cycles as well within those fifteen years. Where uh, in the first group of participants, we had three people who had an email address, three so, out of out 60, of sixty participants, yeah. and then there was a time when we needed like uh, eight uh, desktop computers downstairs where everybody could update their MySpace pages while this was going on and 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 deal with that. And now we don't need computers because everybody comes with their computers themselves. And and so like we have our studio set up. It's just like it's it's the way and uh, people are using technology obviously has uh, changed and the the self understanding of how you want to share your ideas and how easy it is to uh, put them out. Uh, and 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 find I don't know expand your vocabulary to express exactly that idea. I think that's really where the benefit is, and 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 where the major change is. I think what's been really important to us is that we've always looked at um, the, the the people and what they're trying to express, and we're interested in their musical ideas. And while uh, when you're looking at an applicant who's a DJ from Botswana in 2000. I think, I guess, like the point I'm trying to make is like, it's not necessarily about um, the technology that you have at hand. And it's not about how big your studio is or whatever. It's more that we're looking for something in in a person who's really interested to participate in this whole thing and where we think they can take something out of this experience and where we're seeing uh, something that's very strong about what they're saying musically. So while the, the, the tools that people are that that these um, artists are using to express themselves creatively have changed. Uh, the the creative impulse itself hasn't, and that's still what you're looking for. I mean, what I was saying before about you know was the skill level way lower. Mm-hmm. No, it's just they they had very different tools to work with at that time. It's but, not only that, but I think what's probably even more important now because um, the likeliness of make, being able to make a living out of this is not exactly higher. Um, It's even more important to have this thing as a litmus test for you and to see like how much do I really want it. And that's why we really make an effort in all those hour-long conversations to make sure that people understand there is actual human beings out there on this couch. The people that you idolize and worship 
have gone through a lot of hardship usually and a lot of times that hardship has made the creative output better but um, at the same time try to not romanticize it and um, have people tell in their own words um, how it affects them and sometimes it's it really took a toll on their health on their mental health and um, on their private life and all those things just in order to fulfill that creative vision and then um, we want to make sure that people are able to mirror that and go like okay is this what i really want to do and um outside of all the uh narcotics and admiration and um whatever sort of validation is that really giving me what i'm looking for in my life or um wouldn't i be better off um taking up those law studies again or um you know, um, finishing that medicine degree or just staying, becoming a graphic designer. Because um, bizarrely, that's about what more than half of the, our applicants usually are. <laughs> so there, there are people who are um, sort of at this crossroads in their, in their creative lives, yeah. basically. And I think um, it's, it's, uh, it's also like this whole idea of career and creative life. I think it's, it's really important that we also we're not necessarily looking at um, at the academy as a career stepping stone or something like that. So I think really looking at that as a uh, something that can can have uh, an impact on um, your yourself figuring out how badly you want this, how dedicated you are to this, and also getting a lot of different. Um, musical influences around you and having people that you can have as soundboards or sparring people around you. I think this is what one of the biggest values of this is. And so whatever you make out of that and however you channel that and what the decisions are uh, that you take when you stand in front of this huge wall and deciding whether you want to walk back or try and climb it, I think that is really uh, where we're we're trying to um, offer a program that will sort of uh, uh, inspire these kind of thoughts. Well, an interesting thing about this is that um, this this isn't like a course where you go into it and you're expected to come out at the other end with a project that's going to be graded. There there are no requirements on what you come out of the music academy with. That is that correct? That is uh, pretty correct. Yeah, I mean the only requirement is to attend for the fortnight that we put it on, and. Yeah, that's about as much as we want from you. If you, I mean, from 2000 onwards, there's been gigs. So there's the opportunity to play out. For some people, that's a horrifying thing. Other people's just, other people just bath in delight with the side, uh, side of, oh, I'm going to play in New York. And all of a sudden, they have to realize there's moody bounces there as well. Um, probably not getting as many drink tickets as they want to. Um, the mixer might not be working. Um, some limiter is there and um, something else happens. So they're entering real life. And um, that in itself is probably a really valuable lesson as well. That like, I don't know, depending on where you're from and oh, I want to play in London, Berlin, um, New York, LA, whatever. <laughs> and then you see like, oh, great, I played in LA. But uh, at 1.15, no one did get any drinks anymore. And at 2 o'clock, everyone was out of the venue. So, hmm, 
that was um, very rock and roll. Well, the the academy, um, you know, the the first two years were in Berlin, and then you guys started going all over the world. There was a Sao Paulo. Um, you've had two editions in New York, um, L.A. You mentioned um, Dublin. A number. Yeah, so of- actually, we. I mean, to to list them all, I think what's the the biggest step really was like we did the first academy in '98 here in Berlin with mainly Germans, Austrians, and Swiss. And mainly Germans is actually uh, you know it's probably been like 45 out of the 60 sure. that were Germans. Um, the program was already international. Uh, in the second year, we uh, made the academy international by inviting participants from eight or nine countries. So there were people from Ireland, Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, the UK, uh, and those Germans, <laughs> and Swiss <laughs> and, and Austrians. Um, and and so suddenly uh, we knew, okay, this was a step we were making, but to do it somewhere where we were safe, uh, we tried to do it. We did it at the same place we did it in the first year. So it was in Berlin again. And I think that's um, that year in 1999 when we uh, actually saw what happens when you have people from different musical backgrounds, but also from different cultural backgrounds, um, you could really see that there is a whole other element that's added to this experience. And at that time, there were actually still people in the room that knew what it meant uh, to go into a forest and buy vinyl records on the black market. You know, so, I mean, these kind of conversations started happening. And, and, and so after that, in 2000, we went to Dublin, and that was obviously a, a cultural shock for Germans because um, I think it took till about week three till the internet and the phone was working. <laughs> and um, obviously this is not something we can tolerate. But, um, <laughs> um, we also learned it didn't really matter that much because people actually enjoyed themselves a great deal. And um, like, okay, that's... Um, Maybe we need to um, reconfigure our concept in, in that sense as well. And obviously we try to be the best parents for the kinder party possible. But at the same time, sometimes you just got to deal with like local influences. And obviously um, in Vibes. Brazil, for <laughs> example, that was very different. And you just knew that the bigger the O and problem was when they said, oh, no problem, <laughs> that you were actually in deep shit. <laughs> and, um, but still, um, it was a cultural experience. And then we started to work the, um, the local flavor as much into it as possible. And then the year after, um, when we went to uh, Cape Town, Cape Town um, it was the first time we actually had sort of studios that were doing the name justice yeah so 2003 was really the first time that we had a proper recording studio on site we've always had eight rooms where people would make music with each other on whatever the device was or listening music to music uh but 2003 was the first studio that we that we had on site and And this is this is a big part of the whole concept is that you guys create an infrastructure to do the music academy and this yeah. involves studios mm-hmm. uh, a number of recording studios and then you leave them in the city yeah so basically we try and uh, i mean first of all i think the important thing is that we we work on every academy for about a year uh locally so we go there we uh try and connect with the people in the city that are somehow involved in the cultural life and that goes from art curation to uh music festivals and clubs and 
uh, architecture and whatever it may be. And then we try and find a building that we recreate uh, for for the usage of the academy. And that for us means that it has a big room that becomes our lecture hall, which is what most people see online. Uh, and then it always has at least eight bedroom studios, as we call them. So those are the rooms that are writing or composition rooms, if you like. So always... Uh, three or four people get to collaborate in these rooms. And then we have, since 2003 is also uh, that the, we, we built a, an on-site recording studio, a uh, proper recording studio. And with these recording studios, uh, sometimes we partner up with uh, the city councils locally. And we, uh, for example, we've built a, a cultural center in, in uh, Madrid and also in Barcelona. But sometimes it's also collaboration with the local Red Bull organization like Red Bull UK or Red Bull Canada or just the building that we've done in New York. And those then become Red Bull Studios. And we now have nine studios around the globe um, and we're working on one um, in Brazil at the moment, which will be the 10th. Sort of going into that that infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, I know with the with the last uh, the, the last academy, the one that just happened earlier this year in New York, there, there was a, a, a delay mm-hmm. in, in getting that whole thing together. Um, like, I mean, for just to speak this out loud now, I mean, yes, we've, we've moved two of those academies. Uh, one was the one that we had originally planned to do in Tokyo. And um, that's when the tsunami hit Japan and we had to move uh, the academy. And we then did the academy in Madrid instead uh, and stuck with the timing, but changed the location. And then uh, that was in 2011. And then originally we were planning to do the Academy in New York in the end of 2012. And then when we started uh, working on, I mean, working on this building and starting to build the studio facilities as we were planning to use them in the future as well, it became apparent that we, for some of the changes that we had in mind, we would need more time. And rather than trying to fix something up to just hold this academy and then have to go back and tear stuff down and redo the whole thing uh, properly, just because you have that date, we wanted to make this right from the get-go. So we uh, we needed to move it. And then basically moving it did not make sense. You couldn't just move it for a month or something like that because it ultimately means that we have, uh, I mean, now the programming element of the academy like the festival to the city if you want has become quite an important part so we had already booked our 30 some shows for new york and so we had to cancel those shows before we announced and and um, rebook an entire program around the academy so we needed to create enough time for us to be uh, safe on the building side but also safe on um you know, canceling gigs, planning the whole thing again, doing the lecture program again. So yeah, 2012 and 13 felt like doing three academies. <laughs> but at the same time, that's probably something that has changed as well, because that whole programming aspect around it has grown so much that when we had to move the academy in 2001, after 9-11 happened, when we were doing it in New York, and we still had a whole term, that's what we call the 30 people that come and we do two of those terms um, that we still owed an academy to. We had about 10 weeks or so to organize it in London and that was including the Christmas break and um, I guess at that time no other place in London we'd be able to to pull that off but I guess 
we created a monster and now it's gotten to a size where we probably would not be able to move it. Yeah, like, I mean, really it was uh, in the first few years, it was actually important to us that everybody stayed focused on, on just the lectures and the studio stuff or DJing stuff in, in the academy. And, and now, I mean, then I think it really started around Brazil and South Africa and so on, where we... Was, uh, I give credit to Dublin. For Dublin, that. yeah, Dublin, Cause, we cause did they, a few cause, shows. Because they did that thing of... Um, wouldn't wouldn't it be nice if we had people playing in a bar at night? <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was of course on a natural level that was something that would only happen in in Ireland. Uh, but uh, but I think like the feeling of saying like we have people from all around the globe, we've flown them to the other end of the world. There's all these lecturers in town now. We uh, have to find a way how to share this with the city especially came when we went to places where we were bringing a lot to the city and where it was really important to us as well to connect with the local scene. And that, I think, is an element that you will see as a red thread through everything we do, that we work with the local communities, we work with the local uh, music scenes and so on. And we always pair uh, international artists up with the local residents and with the people that are hosting the interesting nights there and so on. So... Um, that's also a portion of why it takes us so long to organize this. Uh, it takes us a year to find out who the right people are we want to be working with, who can help us find ideas that would actually matter in the city. Um, and so, yeah. That's, yeah, because yeah. I, I mean, I'm thinking about um, this past New York edition mm -hmm. and, and New York is where I'm from. So I'm, I'm looking at the list of all of the parties and, you know, you guys are working with Mr. Saturday Night. Okay, check definitely those guys. You've got the bunker in there. That's sort of obvious. But then there are also a number of smaller parties that you guys are pairing up with. Lesser known artists internationally, maybe. Lesser known promoters internationally. And it kind of makes you think there's a whole lot of research that that mm. must go into this. You drank a lot of coffee, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's true. We uh, put a lot of time in, in meeting people and we uh, build up a, an entire team locally. So when when the academy was in full swing in in New York, we were, I think, 108 people working on the project. That's just like the core of the project, not people that are doing production work or anything. Um, and that is because we, you know, start with a conversation and that leads to another. And suddenly you think that, uh, you know, having a newspaper would be nice and then suddenly something else would come up and that requires another group of people. And to get to those 108 people that worked on the project, we might have met with about 500. And the process of meeting all these people is actually really what fuels uh, this entire academy. And I think why we can sit here after 15 years and not bo be bored to death on the one hand side and also uh, really be, be, you know, uh, as uh, privileged to be working with so many different creative forces in all these different cities around the globe. That's really what makes this academy interesting. It's like we have a strong vision of what this is. We know how it needs to manifest itself with its ingredients. And we have, I think, a good sense for people we want to have involved in this and what kind of attitudes they would have to have to, to be part of this whole circus. But from then, uh, it's just amazing to be able to to watch what how it takes shape. And it's a shapeshifter when you're looking at it from year to year, edition to edition. It's uh, uh, the biggest compliment is actually when people tell us it it looks completely different, but it feels the same. I, I wanted to to sort of 
go back to the the sort of the heart of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've been talking about kind of how much the academy has expanded, but I wanted to ask kind of about the lecture couch. Right. Um, you guys have been putting people on those couches now for 15 years. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if there was a story about a lecture, um, getting somebody to do the lecture, maybe what happened during the lecture itself that really stands out in your mind. That look me can only mean uh, a clash of sense of humors. Uh, but um, no, well, there, there, there was a night in Seattle and a certain someone that's known for putting the humor into hip hop played a DJ set. And by that time, um, our participants have gotten to know each other very well already. There was a lot of bonding and that DJ set was probably not the best anyone has ever heard. So there was this big energy in the room of people going, oh, we're going to show them of our questions tomorrow. This is never want to going to want to lecture ever again. <laughs> and so we figured, okay, what are we doing with all this negative energy in the room? So we figured there's a lot of real hip hop people in this room. Uh, we printed out uh, the lyrics to, I think it was just a friend. We put on the instrumental. And at the start of the lecture, we figured let's level the playing field. He's ridiculed himself last night. Let's probably let them feel what that's like. And so asked the real hip hop people to come up. They all uh, performed a couple of verses. The biz gave it a nod. There we go. So um, the biz at the time had had his label in Cologne. So um, we knew quite a lot of people um, that dealt with him or tried to deal with him. And they all went like, okay, if you're lucky and you catch him in a good mood by the whole toy humor thing, that's, you can get him to open up or nothing's gonna work out, but it's gonna be relatively simple that way. Somewhere 20 minutes into this conversation, I think I've been called gay three times, um, mostly based on um, the shirt, which he figured was offensively tight. Um, I tried to discuss that my grandma would give um, me a lot of shit about that very same shirt because it's way too loose. So maybe sometimes things are a matter of perspective. And um, he got kind of got bored with the gay thing and so he was wondering so where are you from it's like uh, cologne that's where his label was at the time so oh hang on is that in hitler germany or the other germany uh, like, okay um here we go so uh long story short um that was not the most fruitful conversation and um but pretty memorable for everyone that was there yeah like i think there's few moments that make people feel so uncomfortable um than this moment <laughs> like for some people it was really like watching uh, bill cosby and monty pythons try and perform together in an act <laughs> and and they were somewhat amused by that for all the holy hip-hop fans in the room it was the biggest uh, insult and heresy that could have ever happened to the biz and whatever um the lecture never got aired um, I was going to ask if no, our, he, he our never, listeners never, could find yeah, it. He never approved it. He never sent a release form, but um, I know that someone local with a lot of um, sensitivity towards the subject actually um, caught me on the way out of the lecture hall afterwards and was like, 
boy, you've been talking to a sack of potatoes there. <laughs> was it hard to get the academy back on back on track after such a contentious that's the great thing because um actually we like those sort of things because um that's really something where people start challenging each other and themselves and their perceptions and we're like because you can look at this from so many different angles and a lot of them are really valid in a lot of ways there's just something to be said for a first-hand account of something that you're interested in by a real life person and if we can facilitate one or two of those things every time then that's totally right no no when you and it's not only the older uh, guys but um, in new york for example we had malcolm cecil and van dyke parks and in both cases you're not only talking about really fantastic records you're talking about technology you're talking about history you're talking about sociology you're talking about basic human decency and all those things underlined by some of the greatest bass lines and arrangements in the world and i was like hey it's um it's a pretty all right job actually you use the word um facilitate and You've been facilitating the connection between artists. I think that's part of what makes uh, the book that you guys are doing for the 15-year anniversary kind of a, a really cool um, way of summarizing what you guys have done. Uh, explain the project a little bit. I think the the I mean in a in a more general way to answer your question, um, what is this project? So yes, um, so we've been doing this academy for 15 years. And we wanted to do a book. I mean, some, one of the main things that drove us when we started this academy was to document this culture and to make to to share knowledge and make this these conversations somehow accessible. And we've tried everything to capture that, and we've gone through uh, changes of media from VHS to whatever we're doing online nowadays. Um, but the 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 thing we always wanted to do was was a book. Uh, we've done one book uh, in 2000, which was um, from scratch. And that was mostly like taking actually conversations and technical tips and these kind of things from the academy, pretty much one-to-one -one plus a very heavy service uh, index, hard work, Torsten, uh, um, you know, part together. It was a book that was like the DJ handbook, if you like. And this book here, uh, we were looking at uh, how do we how do we look at 15 years of the academy uh, without necessarily having to look back and without necessarily having to look at a history of the academy and how it's evolved and these kind of things? So we didn't certainly didn't want to do a book like that. We wanted to turn the actual book into the couch, if you like. So the idea to do uh, do a book called For the Record um, was pretty much having these pairings of uh, of of musicians speaking to each other and do what the academy tries to do with showing connections and uh, bringing people from different musical backgrounds and different generations and different approaches somehow together and then turning that into something that would be very accessible through the uh, through through the way it's uh, presented a lot of what we do is about that couch and two people having a conversation. And um, the reason why we put 
so-called journalists on there was a lot of the times we figured, okay, these are absolutely great creative minds, but the whole situation of having to talk to a room full of people all looking at them, watching every move is not too comfortable for everyone. And um, But still they somehow make it through it and a lot of times there's really, really great things coming out of it. But we figured it might actually be interesting if um, we find people that actually talk to each other and then you have these um, pairings where you think you have more or less the same aspect of the recording process but you come at it from very different angles. So let's say you have Bernard Purdy who might be one of the most recorded drummers in the world. And then you have Jackie Liebertzeit on the other hand, and who's probably the steadiest drummer in the world. But if you pair them up with the right photographer as well, and you can see over the course of like a 20 page spread of like, okay, that's how this person wants to be seen. And that's how he actually, what he looks like when he's interacting with another person. And when you get deeper into the character and somehow, in these conversations amongst peers, um, you get to very different levels. And um, yes, we try to concentrate on different aspects of the recording aspect, but at the same time, it's not very that technical. Um, you'd have, I don't know, Nile Rogers and Martin Ware um, talking about pop songs because that's what they do. But at the same time, they're always looking for validation and recognition in a lot of other fields. And how they're dealing with that in the same time, while being successful, that's a really interesting notion. And there's a lot of really interesting things between the lines going on there. Yeah, there are a lot of layers. I mean, the definition of peer in this group is a pretty interesting one. I, I think you have conversations with uh, Ben UFO talking to DJ Harvey. Right. Um, it's it's uh, kind of bridging generations, but it's also finding these these really maybe not so obvious connections between uh, between people who are kind of coming from a similar place. No, no, there's a lot of that in there, but there's also, even in cases where you'd figure those people talk all the time anyway, like uh, Carsten Nikolai, Olaf Bender, who had Diamond version, and um, Uwe Schmidt, who's Atom Hot or Atom TM, and all those things. Um, the thing is, when you force them on a very topic, then you sometimes get to places where the odd dinner conversation probably doesn't go to. And um, through that, it tells you a lot about the contexts that uh, uh, the contexts that a lot of the music comes from. And um, and in the best moments, and I um, hate to brag, but um, I reread a lot of those things while I was supposed to be on holiday. And um, it was probably one of the best holiday readings I ever had because. Um, at the best moments, you not only hear about music and technology and all those things, but you actually get to know a lot about human nature. And um, that's something we always like to get across. And we're really happy when it happens, even with sacks of potatoes. <laughs>